0: This podcast contains material that some listeners may find distressing. Content includes explicit language and themes related to workplace bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, stalking, physical and sexual violence, discussions relating to self-harm and suicidality, disordered eating, other mental health issues, sexism, racism, and homophobia. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Behind Blue Doors. I am your host today, Lee, and co-host is Mo. Hi,
2: Mo. Good morning.
1: And uh, may not be morning for everybody else in it wherever you are in the world, but for us, it's just turned afternoon, I guess. Today, we are very lucky to have Teresa Doherty here. She's a former OPP auxiliary officer and has quite a story to tell about Uh, what happened to her as an auxiliary officer and as she was trying to apply through the process to become a police officer. A mother of six. What? So we're really happy to have you here. Teresa and I have been connected for a while and have chatted throughout the last couple of years on and off and have been a support for one another. So I'm really happy to have you here and be able for you to tell your story and, and share it with everybody else because it needs to be heard, and your story needs to be heard because I know you've tried to get it out there. And uh, as a lot of us have
0: faced, it gets shut down. So, Teresa, welcome. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, hello, Lee. Hello, Mo. And uh, looking forward to taking part in this absolutely wonderful initiative.
1: Awesome. I would love it if you would just, you know, wherever
0: you're comfortable
1: starting your story.
0: Well, all right. I think. Maybe it might be prudent to give the listeners an idea of a a quick background, but first and foremost, I'm honored to have met with these lovely ladies to hear their stories and to take part in what I truly believe to be a groundbreaking initiative for women who are brave enough to come forward and talk about their experiences, their negative experiences associated with our police across Ontario, and even perhaps for some beyond the boundaries of our province. So I would like to give the listeners a quick background. I am not unlike any of you. The only difference may be that I chose in my late 30s and early 40s to put family first. And I I had always wanted to find a rewarding career, but in as much as that Really important to me on a professional level. It was also important to me that if God chose to bless me with um, children, then that would be my first priority. I have five sons and a daughter. Uh, my husband and I have been married since 1985. They're all healthy, and um, any uh, any parent can relate to that blessing. Uh, sometimes a blessing, sometimes a curse. It depends how old they are. I have uh, a lot of them are teenagers right now. But either way, my husband and I are simple people. He worked for the Parks Department. He's got a lot of um, impressive history himself. But fast forward to 2010, I had decided in my late 30s to go back to university. I had come to that uh, education with already attending my local college, and I took nursing and I took social services. So then I had my children, and when I was in my early 40s, I was missing, you know, involving with the community, involving with like-minded people to seek rewarding professional um, fulfillment. And so I realized that I had to brush up on my uh, education and I went back to my local university and absolutely fell in love with attending as an older adult and not so much as a younger student where the focus was pub crawls and relating with my uh, fellow 20 year old students at college. So when I arrived at Trent University, I, um, I dove in wholeheartedly, and I am proud to say that after 10 years, and I will I will mention this here because it's part of my story, that it took me 10 years because I couldn't pay for university, given our financial situation. So I applied for a bursary, and I was quite happy to discover that I was eligible for a full bursary, but there are restrictions. Because it was a bursary, I was limited for 2.5 credits per year, and I had to get 20 credits, so that took me 10 years. But I am proud to say that I graduated with a cumulative average of 80% across the board. And then I just immediately started to, it had been on the back burner for quite some time. I gave serious thought into how I could segue that into a career in policing. And so this happened to also coincide those two years, and I'm going to say 2010, 2011, with really the worst period of my life with my husband and myself with respect to our financial situation. As I briefly mentioned earlier, uh, my husband also has a wonderful career that he's invested at least 25 years into. And he lost his job uh, about the same time that I graduated from Trent University. And so what happened over the next seven or eight years is a huge part of my story. And because we have so much to address, I will try to briefly mention it here. So my husband left and went to Alberta, where for the next eight years he lived. And during those eight years, so we're talking from 2011 to 2017, he tried to recoup his financial position and for two years, he could not. And so within two applications to places in Alberta, he was hired. But because I had already set in motion the wheels to become eligible to be a police officer in Ontario, he left and it was his job that was able to keep our mortgage and our family afloat. And so he was gone for seven and a half years while I tried to become a police officer in Ontario. So Teresa, tell me about when
1: you begin your applications for trying to become a police officer. And this is well, obviously your husband's away and that's why you don't follow with
0: him to Alberta because you're trying to pursue this career in policing. Correct. And I am accredited for Ontario alone. I would eventually apply to the Calgary Police Service, of which I was denied that application. But in about 2012, I really ramped up efforts to start to apply. I applied to numerous police forces. Of course, the first one, which makes perfect sense, is my local force. I applied to that force three times alone. I applied to York Regional Police. I applied to Durham Regional Police. I applied, of course, to the Toronto Police Service, and I applied uh, to the OPP. And so during the applications, I was also invested in being a sole parent because my husband was gone out of province, and so I committed to ticking off all the boxes that every single police force advertises on their websites for what they look for for applicants. And so I thought, perfect. They're looking for women. You know, they want to increase the percentage of women police officers. At that time, it sat at around 22%. They wanted individuals with post-secondary experience. They wanted community involvement. They wanted life experience. And so I absolutely thought in those earlier years that for lack of a better word i would pretty much be slide right into a position i thought for sure with the two or three uh, initial ones that i had gone to that i would hear back in a positive way now i didn't hear back in a positive way from any of them york regional police turned me down citing that i needed to make considerable improvements to my application and reapply in one year. As you ladies know, most police forces in Ontario, you have to wait a year between applications. And so every time I submit an application, in particular with that force, at that time, I had just received my honors university degree. I had my college diplomas. I had passed the physical standing, which I'll inject here. I'm quite proud to say that the formerly required timed physical police test, I completed 12 times. And I believe I am the oldest person in Ontario to have successfully done so. But regardless, every police force that I applied to was well aware of that. And each and every one would continue to reply with the same form letter saying, you're not competitive enough and you're, you need to improve your competitive standing and reapply in another year. And so around that time, that was when I had applied with a, uh, Toronto Police Service and in uh, November of 2012 I did have a successful interview with them and uh, it took at least a year and a half almost two years before I did hear back from them and that was in April of 2014 where a detective constable a background officer called me at my home and had invited me to move forward with that force Her words were, Teresa, I want to work quickly to get you in. And within the same phone call, uh, which has been discussed at great length with my Toronto Police Service human rights disclosure, which was in 2017, that during that phone call, I had asked, uh, she had asked me my age. And I took great offense to that and indicated that legally she wasn't entitled to do so. So that prompted the upcoming newspaper articles in the Toronto Star of um, September 2016 and um, where the reporter addressed something that had never been talked about before, and that was ageism in police recruiting. And so it took a year before I actually went to Bay Street in Toronto and unfortunately, and much to my continued dismay, just signed a non-disclosure agreement, the results of which I still uh, wrestle with and am trying to open up to a broader audience to challenge non-disclosures. That will all be part of a discussion in my upcoming memoir. So anyway, uh, we'll move on from that particular service. And by 2015, 2016, I was successful enough with the OPP at my detachment. I had tried to get on as an auxiliary officer for about a year and a half, two years. I had also This is important, involved in many ride-along opportunities with my local OPP detachment. Now, back then in 2012, 2013, 2014, you didn't have to be an auxiliary or a special constable to take advantage of those practical opportunities. To take advantage of a ride-along opportunity with a uniformed officer was highly advantageous to putting towards an application It demonstrated your commitment. It demonstrated the uh, ability to involve with your community and to see the daily operation of a police force and what a, uh, a uniformed officer can be expected to do on a daily basis. So I likely had involved in that capacity as a civilian for probably 40, 50 times over three or four years. And so with that confidence... And through one of the uniformed officers I would regularly go out with, I heard that they were finally opening up the OPP auxiliary opportunities. I applied. I got an interview. And in June of 2016, I found myself at the OPP Aurelia headquarters taking part in becoming a OPP auxiliary officer. Very excited about that opportunity at that time. And uh, from that point on, I would proceed to spend and volunteer, I'd like to add, because auxiliary officers are not paid. It's a volunteer commitment. It's a very well-respected position with the police force. I certainly was absolutely thrilled to involve in such a capacity. It's a revered institution, and I treated it with utmost respect to uh, have been invited to move forward. It was also the first time in a good five years that there was some type of tangible evidence that my efforts of five years were finally come to fruition. Because most people, and I will say in the class of the 50 or 52 auxiliary officers in 2016, all, because they asked, uh, had ambitions of becoming a uniformed police officer.
1: Now, Teresa, when you were doing this, were you still applying to services? Like, were you still trying to get, uh, applying to be a, a serving police officer? Were you still doing that during the auxiliary time?
0: Not so much by that point, because I had already exhausted my efforts with the other police forces that I have mentioned, to no avail. My own police force three times had declined me. I had heard through the grapevine that they had said in 2011, she's too mature to apply. And I know that because one of the references worked at the police force.
1: Do you think that the other services after Toronto didn't hire you or put you further through the process because of that newspaper article or because they had found out that you had an issue with the ageism that
0: Toronto police created? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, if anything, I hope that my take on the situation is viewed with um, the lenses of somebody who's being completely candid and honest. This is um, a huge part of, of my book that I address, and that is the fact that there's it's a broken system. It's a complicit arrangement. It's an arrangement that is a longstanding tradition with an old boys club. It's a youth-driven recruiting mindset, and it has been for years and years. And there's a lot of nepotism involved in police recruiting. So once I had started to be more vocal and go to the agencies, which are established to intervene at the civilians' expense, to intercept their concerns and complaints about police conduct, each and every one of them, and so, as you ladies know, we've got the Special Investigations Unit, we've got the OCPC, the Ontario Civilian Police Commission, as well as the OIPRD, which is the Ontario Independent Police Review Director. Those are the three Ontario police oversights. And so, during the years prior to becoming an auxiliary officer for the OPP in 2016, I had approach, started to approach them and make it known and make some complaints as to what was happening how i was treated with senior members of the police forces how i was disregarded how there's absolutely no equity in police recruiting whatsoever and i challenged their assertion that i was not competitive that was their go-to explanation a simple word explanation for years and years of effort
1: when really you felt like it was it was completely because of your age
0: i believe that my age was the catalyst that was responsible for um, disallowing me to be hired as a police officer in Ontario. Eventually, because I became vocal about my mistreatment and I refused, refused to be subdued by their very rude and um, dismissive attitude towards me. And I'm not talking just a simple fellow police officer, who, of course, I held an extremely high regard. I'm an auxiliary officer or I was a civilian. And I was so respectful and grateful to have that opportunity, thinking that eventually that would segue into a paid position. But then I started to approach the higher ups because I had no other place to go. Well,
1: and we all, that's where we all end up going, thinking that something's going to be different. Right. I'm actually interested to hear what Mo, because Mo uh, worked in recruiting um, as a recruiting officer. So I'm just interested to hear Mo's perspective on what you're saying.
2: Well, no, I I didn't want to interrupt, Teresa, but I wondered if uh, anyone ever sat down with you uh, at the recruitment level and actually talked to you about, what they meant by you being non-competitive.
0: Well, I'd like to um, address that. Thank you so much, Mo. I I need to just try to briefly interject a couple things. I spoke with former inspector, then commissioner of the OPP, who hails from my hometown. I addressed an article he took part in, of a newspaper Northumberland Times about the lack of women in, in police recruiting. And so... Imagine I'm at home. My husband's been gone for four or five years at this point. I have no money, no job. I just offered my third application to the OPP. I'm, as far as I'm concerned, ticked all the boxes that they require. And so I was declined. And so I contacted this individual. He never got back to me. And then I sent another inquiry. And lo and behold, he phoned me at my home. And so I believe that was in 2014, 2015, and um, to his credit, he spent an hour on the phone with me. Now, the contents of that conversation to me are quite disturbing because I was in a position of such vulnerability and angst because for years, I had... Impressed upon recruiters that I was ready, willing, and capable of doing the job. And each and every one of them would continue to send back a simple form letter and say, You're not competitive. So, anyway, back to the conversation with this um, former inspector. I quoted what he said in the Northumberland Times. I said, um, Forgive me, inspector, but I said, I've applied to the OPP three times and I have spent four years remaining what your forces indicate is competitive. And I've just received my third denial being furthered in the process. And he said to me, yes, but Teresa, he said, you haven't worked. And I said, because I know we can't say names, but I said, um, I'd like you to know that I attended your women's only symposium and spoke with a recruiting officer who suggested to me that in light of my lack of employment, perhaps to submit um, the reasons why you don't have anything. And I I said to that recruiter, and I, I will say this to you, as an older applicant, I offer 25 plus years of related employment, but they refused to look at it. It was as though it didn't even happen. It was though I had never worked a day in my life. And so he was aware of that. And then there was a pause. And I said, sorry, Teresa, so you were working
2: while you were raising your kids and going to school. Then.
0: The first two or three years when my husband left, All I was doing was volunteering with a local OPP-affiliated community police, which I I still do to this day. And I was looking for work and remaining competitive and going on ride-alongs. But it took me two, three years before I could find paid employment. But my point is, is that this high-ranking official completely dismissed 25 years of employment experience. And then even knowing all of that, and I said, by the way, inspector, I'm also raising... multiple children by myself while my husband is working. I'm the oldest woman in Ontario to pass this physical test. I've got honours university degree. I've got this, I've got that. Pregnant pause. Well, Teresa, I think that you need to take another year off, reassess your situation and reapply. You're welcome to reapply. And so... The writing should have been on the wall, even at that time, that they were never going to look at me. However, I was very dogged and determined and refused to give up, so I would spend not one more year, not even two more years, but three more years, during which time I found other paid employment, continued with my OPP-affiliated community policing on a volunteer basis, became an OPP auxiliary officer, and reapplied while I was an OPP auxiliary officer, and the fourth application was denied on grounds of being non-competitive. And so what followed is just part of my story and my challenge to the whole abuse of powers of the police. And I contacted the recruitment manager at the time in 2017, a female inspector. And I explained to her that I had just been denied for the fourth time yet Three years prior to that time, her colleague had suggested that I do these things in order to have a more competitive application. And so I had committed to that, endeavored through hugely challenging circumstances. Hadn't seen my husband in a couple of years at that point, always dealing with um, financial deficits. And I thought, finally, after, after all these years, my seventh year into it, this fourth application, especially since I had talked to her colleague who suggested that I fulfill all these other obligations, that I would be successful. Sorry, Teresa, they told you you would be successful if you did these things. So here's what recruiters say. They suggest, even though this is my whole stance with police recruiting, you can be completely competitive according to what they're looking for. You can be. You can You can pass the time physical. You can have everything that they say that they desire, that they're looking for in a police officer. But they weren't interested in me at all. And that is why I made headlines when I challenged Toronto Police Service for not hiring me because I was too old. No,
2: of course. And I understand that. I just wondered if they actually told you that if you did X,
0: Y, Z, you would be hired. Yeah. So when I spoke with Inspector in 2014, I believe it was 2014, he indicated to me in that one-hour phone call,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which to me is so disturbing because I had just said everything that I had accomplished. And and I was ready, willing, and able to go. I was ready to go. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's just another gatekeeping tactic. I mean, surely he likely thought that this woman is going to give up. I'm going to tell her she's got to take another year because I thought, shouldn't they be... Um, commending me on my tenacity and my determination? Like, wouldn't that be an awesome characteristic of a police officer, you know, to have endeavored and tried so hard? I wanted to set a new precedent of what a police officer is. Because to this day, there still is not. And the criteria is so arbitrary to what they look for in police recruiting. I had it all. I had it all on paper and then some. I was just about 20 years plus older than the average applicant. So that is my, the basis of my whole Mm -hmm. complaint.
2: So you get on uh, finally with auxiliary and things are going well and you've worked from what I understand with this OPP auxiliary or that, have you worked with sort of the same shift for a while? Because you said you were going on ride alongs. Is that all uh, in the same vicinity as uh, where you're, doing your volunteerism with
0: Auxiliary? It is, absolutely. It was with my detachment, my hometown detachment. So having already taken advantage of some of the um, ride-along opportunities years prior to as a civilian, I was familiar with many of the faces at that detachment. You know, I I was so humbled and proud to actually have OPP and Auxiliary, a uniform. Like when I left headquarters and I, and I got my fitness pin. When I got my fitness pin, I was in my early fifties and so proud of myself. And And you should be. Thank you. And so proud of my family. I went to the celebration in Aurelia and I shook, you know, the hands of individuals that I've, uh, um, that I've seen on W5 programs and, and, different things that have come up with that I address in my book. But yes, I left there in 2016 and I proceeded to take advantage of every and all opportunity that I was entitled and allowed to. But almost immediately, I felt sort of marginalized during the year that I was there. You know, you get to be a little bit older and you're not as doe-eyed and, and hesitant to to speak your mind. Um, I, I very much valued attending the monthly meetings. I very much valued participating in whatever, you know, I need to do to fill my hourly obligations. But very quickly and you know, over the months between June of 2016 and June of 2017, I realized that a lot of my younger counterparts in the auxiliary program were seemingly getting a lot more opportunities. And I did, you know, make a complaint to my auxiliary uh, supervisor about that. I had mentioned to her as well that, you know, I'd invested all this time. I've already applied to the OPP three times and I had hoped to put no more than a year in and I was going to reapply again and surely this time it would be successful. But yes, uh, during that time as an OPP uh, auxiliary officer, I think my eyes were wide open as to the who is encouraged to get in, for instance. And I'm not shy about speaking this way. You know, I've learned a lot and I don't believe in um, mincing words anymore because I played the game and I was professional and I was committed and I was respectful and it got me nowhere, absolutely nowhere. I, I wasted 10 years of my life simply trying to become a police officer. And I was scorned, laughed at, ridiculed, literally, when I spoke to the recruitment manager of the OPP in a very hot day of 2017, and I expressed my dissatisfaction, and I had just finished my human rights disclosure with Toronto Police Service. So I had left the OPP auxiliary program in June, and then I did my my Toronto Police Service human rights disclosure, August first of twenty seventeen, and within days, I phoned the recruitment manager at the OPP, and I thought, in my again naivety, maybe somehow I'd slip past the radar. I'm going to speak to, with the person who's in charge, and she made it quite plain she was not remotely interested in furthering the conversation. I said. I was directed by your own colleague, a high-ranking officer, three years ago after my third failed application, if I committed to doing such, 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 and such. And I said, and I have. And now I'm an OPP auxiliary officer that I just recently left, that you would look at my, revisit my resume because that's what they do. And I have this from correspondence from the ministry. I have correspondence from the ministry because I also wrote to them. And I said, I need to know what you define as a competitive police officer, because everything that I had been through. And so what they do is they deflect it back to the same police force. So already I know when I spoke to this inspector at the OPP that hot August day in 2017, I mean, I already was on their radar. She could not wait to get off the phone with me. In fact, she said, Teresa, I can't talk to you right now. I'm going on vacation on Friday. And I said, well, forgive me, but I've committed seven years to becoming a police officer. Perhaps you can give me three minutes of your time. I said, your colleague suggested to me if I committed to such and such and such and I submitted another application, because indeed, that is how it's determined. You look back at the prior application and you see what advancements, what what improvements the applicant has made, and you base your assessment on that. Anyway. But
1: Teresa, you realized that they were in conversation with Toronto Police, right? Oh,
0: absolutely. That's, that's okay. That's, no, no, I, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so my point is, is that she said, "I," and I gave her three solid, fabulous references. And she said, I don't have time to look at references. I don't have time to look at your application. I'm going vacation on Friday. Very dismissive, not remotely, embodying the OPP <laughs> mandate of professionalism and respect and equity and all of those things. But yes, absolutely, I know that that I was a subject of conversation about that. So uh, that's when I introduced the conversation about my sexual assault allegations with a member of the Ontario Provincial Police. So that's what I wanted to actually
1: get into because... That's probably from me knowing your story. It's going to be difficult for you to talk about. I know this. And uh, it's the most egregious that happened,
0: I would maybe. You know, it's not difficult for me to talk about anymore. And I'm going to try to um, articulate it in this way. So that all happened six, seven years ago now. So what I have carefully outlined in my upcoming book that particular episode in my life is placed mid-novel, okay? Because what many listeners may not understand or agree with—I don't know—I I, it's my story. It's, they didn't go through it. Is that, in as much as that is a huge injustice and personal affront? Absolutely, it is. My story to me is more important in drawing attention to how I tried to appeal and approach every professional standard, every police force, every oversight agency, the Human Rights Tribunal. I wrote to Premier Doug Ford and his minister in charge of policing. I petitioned the House of Commons and it ended back in the decision of former Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair, who ignored 90% of it, So with respect to the sexual assault allegations, I'll try to articulate it, how it happened at the time and how I said when a background detective officer called me when I informed my detachment about it.
1: I would, if you could, I'd like it if you could first just give the story of what happened to you that night.
0: Yeah, I will. And, um... So I'll try to make it uh, succinct. I'm not going to get into flamboyant details. What happened was the years that I was a civilian, not remotely professionally related to the OPP or any other police force, no police officer, no auxiliary officer. I took advantage of ride-alongs with my local OPP, very gratefully. Uh, sometimes I went out with women police officers. A couple times I went out with a couple of other police officers. And then I was directed to the attention of a certain police officer uh, through my exposure with the uh, OPP Milburg Community Policing. And they suggested to me that this individual, uh, an officer would, with Peterborough County, uh, regularly takes out individuals for ride Now, I think that's all changed. I think now you have to be affiliated with the police, but at that time you did not. And so what happened was I gratefully accepted opportunities to do ride-alongs with this individual, working valiantly to get hired as a police officer, completely broke at home, raising children by myself. And this individual, I believe, ingratiated himself into my life in such a capacity that to this day causes me trauma. But if I could say that I had to rise above that at the time. Let's say I attended about... I'm going to say about 30 ride-alongs with this individual. Now, as you ladies know, oftentimes you can be in a police car for eight hours a day. Okay, there's lots of opportunity for conversation. He was studying for his many promotions he would eventually get and he would use me as a, since I had recently graduated with honors at the university and and he, you know, he would would flatter me and he would, he knew how much I had tried so very hard to become a police officer, was still trying to become a police officer. And so, you know, these, these instances, uh, he befriended me and he had placed himself in a position in my life where I trusted him. Absolutely. I respected him. I respected the position. I was hoping to become one of those people. And, you know, what were, went from verbal exchanges and salacious comments to, you know, inevitably slowly the touch the touch on the knee, the touch on the shoulder, to uh, outright groping, kissing, all of this was a succession of events that increased in intensity from, I'm going to say, twenty between 2011, 2012, and 2015, and to an event, and I call it the event because I don't know what else to call it, um, of such extensive and heinous the most that you can imagine, because I can't verbalize the word of an assault that happened in my own driveway in March, and um, this event caused me to experience immediately, and I'm going to say the next day, the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, imagine, if you will, a woman who's on her own, raising four kids; two of the boys were at West at that time, who has only tried to be considered on a professional level, who has proven, you know, that she can, she was up to the the challenge of becoming a police officer, who had been denied repeatedly by police forces year after year. And this individual abused his badge, abused the powers that his badge bestows upon him uh, in such a reprehensible manner that the effect was, that the very next day, I knew that something was wrong with me. And what
1: what happened? What happened in the driveway?
0: Well, he sexually assaulted me in the worst way possible you can imagine, without me saying that word. And this was something that is such a degrading act.
1: Was he in a police uniform at the time?
0: Oh, yes, he was on duty, actually. And you know it's such a degrading act, and I know that it's a it's it's not an act. It's not an act of of kindness or loving or or sexuality. It's 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 an individual's way of of uh, it's a power. It's a power struggle. And so anyway, um, if I could move from that, the next day I went to my doctor and I I got um, some treatment for anxiety and post traumatic stress disorder because immediately. I, I couldn't even really function for a couple of weeks. I had to get my mother to come and help me with the children. And my mom's elderly, bless her. Oh, she's just a whirlwind though. She's physically fit and she's amazing. And I don't know what I'd do without her. But anyway, I couldn't tell my husband because he was working at the only job that kept us from losing our home. He was 2,800 miles away. More importantly, I couldn't tell the OPP any more than that. I, when I had the detective the Detective from the OPP from Northumberland County phoned me at my home when she became aware of the situation. She said, Do you want to make a statement? And I said, I don't want to make a statement, and I'll tell you why. I said, I don't believe that the OPP are impartial. I said, First of all, you need to know the struggles that I've been through for, for a couple of years now. At that time, what was four years now, trying to become a police officer. And I said, I know what's going to happen. The officer in question is going to get a slap on the wrist. I said, I will lose all these years I've tried to become a police officer because it'll all be focused on an upcoming investigation, which I know is going to take years. I said, I need to focus on my children. They need their mother, their father's far away, and he can't come home. So I'm still going to become a police officer if I can. Naively, I thought that. And one individual, one individual's act is not going to taint my image of what a fine contributing police officer should be. And so I denied having an interview with that person. They never, ever followed up on that. My detachment never phoned the SIU. They
1: never phoned. So just so I'm clear, you had kind of reported
0: Yes, I reported it, it to disclose. my detachment. Right. I reported it to my detachment. And my detachment, and I know this because I've, I've read the Police Services Act, you know, through and through with respect to things that concern me. They had an obligation to contact oversight. They had an obligation to contact the commissioner. They had an obligation to contact the ministry. They had an obligation to contact Absolutely. The head office. Nobody contacted anybody. And so I got my human rights matter over with. Thankfully, thankfully, I was able to rise above the physical um, effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. It was horrible summer, but I had to focus on the human rights thing coming up in August. And then in 2017, when the inspector of recruiting, who at that time, when I asked her why I wasn't hired and she was in such a hurry to get off the phone, Then I informed her of what had happened at my detachment. Now imagine, a few months have already gone by. So she said, I can't talk to you right now. Call me back tomorrow. So I called her back the next day. And she said, I've spoken to your detachment. Your inspector is waiting to talk to you. And I said, an allegation of such severity, I would think that he would contact me. And I said, again, I'm going to say it to you. I don't think that somebody right at my detachment is going to be impartial. I said, I'm not being resistant to conversation. I just don't trust you guys. And that was 2017. And um, I, I started approaching more earnestly the police oversight. I approached the Ontario Ombudsman. The Ontario Ombudsman is well aware of my efforts to challenge Misconduct of senior officers, in particular that lady. They're aware that I had uh, reached out to her regarding the sexual assault and did nothing about it. A big concern to me is when I spoke to this individual, I said, "Okay, so you're telling me you don't know what makes an applicant competitive." She said, "No, I don't. That's up the That's up to the ministry to decide." And I said, you're the manager of recruitment at head office of the OPP, and you can't tell me what you look for for potential applicants. No, I can't. That's up to the ministry. So, of course, I wrote to the ministry, who, in effect, just sent me right back to the OPP. She sent it to the former commissioner, Vince Hawks, who sent me back a form letter of his woman that works for him, who has also launched her own suit against the OPP, by the way. And uh, she sent me a form letter back, basically just wiping her hands of all of my concerns. So here you've got this woman who's invested seven years at this point, been denied by multiple police forces, reported a sexual harassment leading to assault over a number of years. The OIPRD wrote me back and said, because you were a member of a police service According to section 52.2 or whatever, we are not obligated, for lack of a better word, of intervening or responding. If you want to take this further, you can approach the Supreme Court of Canada. And so I wrote her back and I said, I've already indicated to you that when these events happened, when I was harassed leading to assault, I was a civilian. I was in no way, shape or form associated professionally with the Ontario Provincial Police. And she never got back to me. I wrote the OCPC, Ontario Civilian Police Commission, and their only suggestion for help was to reach out to my local victim services. Now, these agencies have an obligation to get a hold of people. There's no safety net in place. Not one person contacted me to say, I'm not sure what's going on here, Teresa. We need we, we want to, to speak to you about this. We want to address this. You know, it, it was so apparent and so obvious, although it took me years to realize that this is such, this is, this is, this is beyond me. This happens to so many people and I can't speak to anybody else's story. You know, we all have our own stories. The severity of the circumstances are all different I know that for me, and getting back to maybe what you would pose to me, Mo, or maybe you, Lee, is that in order to move forward with my life, uh, and because my focus of my platform going forward, it's not about the sexual assault by the police officer. It's not. It's not. Because I had to come to terms with that five years ago, because I was looking after all my children. And I still had wanted to become a police officer. So... You know, for all those. But I think what's important in all of that is that
1: a criminal offense was was committed against you.
0: Right.
1: A criminal investigation was not commenced. He was never held accountable. Therefore no And if the
2: OIPRD wasn't going to do anything, why didn't they refer it to the SIU? Right. I don't understand. Yeah.
1: It's just really gross negligence and we see it. And it's interesting because they were treating you the way we often see the, the police women who report are treated, which is like basically right. you can't you can't be a victim because of the Police Services Act and all these other things and all these other procedures that have to take place. I mean, we're not okay with that, obviously. And Teresa,
2: let's face it. You obviously have that uh, same problem that a lot of us police women have insofar as you're just too difficult and you won't go away and you won't shut your mouth. <laughs> I love that. Which, I love which one. is the problem. Oh, we love it too. But
0: that's but th- they can't deal. That's not how we're supposed to be. No, no, no. I I understand that. So here's the thing: had I been hired as I should have been years ago, I absolutely revered the policing profession. I thought that it was the most wonderful occupation to involve in. Okay, I was physically fit. I was personable. I was educated. I was blessed on so many levels and the resistance that I was met initially just because I was in my mid-40s and it's geared towards a youth-driven agenda. I was like, no, no, this isn't happening because I'm going to show all you guys. I'm just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Well, what I consider to be admirable tenacity, they looked at it as like, this person's just not going to go away. She's a thorn in my side. But with before I forget, Mo, with respect to your, the, I, did, I did have to launch that SIU investigation because nobody else was going to. And so, and I had actually even called back the OPP. And then I said, uh, not my detachment, but the Northumberland one. And she said, that is really strange. I don't know why anybody hasn't gotten back to you. And I said, yes, strange indeed. And then so in 2018, in June, I contacted the SIU. Good. And I reached out to the SIU manager and I indicated that they were my last resort, that I have contacted all the other oversight. I'd been involved in human rights. I contacted professional standards that I went through the chain of command. Nobody would hear me. So I said, I said, I'm complaining about senior officers misconduct. And they said, that doesn't meet our threshold. I said, but this does. I said, I was sexually assaulted by an OPP police officer. And you'll find this interesting and disturbing at the same time. So in, in June, July, I have my correspondence that I contacted the manager of the SIU. And he has in his possession my written declaration of being sexually assaulted in early July. Three months went by. And I gave him a rundown of what happened. Three months went by and I never heard back from the SIU. And so I called the SIU. And I spoke to him very briefly. He said, I can't talk to you right now. And I said, I need an answer. And so I sent him an email and I said, I sent you your documents that you requested because he said, you need to get something from the OPP that you or the OIPRD that you had contacted them. And so I, I included that. I sent it to the SIU. I gave it to the manager. And three months went by. I said, what's going on with my file? And the manager of the SIU said, oh, we didn't receive that. Did you text it? Did you scan it? To say I was flabbergasted was, you know, it it was ridiculous. And so I said, you're telling me that this email that we've been corresponding on for the last three or four months, you didn't receive my documents that you requested about sexual assault? So I kept pushing and pushing. Finally, grudgingly, they had two lead investigators come to my hometown And I was interviewed by them. And that was in December of 2018. It was, I think, like a week before Christmas. And yeah, so I I shared my story with them. And, you know, time is a wonderful thing because it creates a welcome distance from certain traumatic events that happen in our lives. That at the time, you know, you, you crumble, you're incapacitated by them. But then time will create an opportunity for healing and for uh, being more focused and uh, looking at it from an outsider's perspective. And so when I went, imagine if you will, ladies, sitting down with these intimidating investigators with the SIU who had come from Mississauga to interview me. And so I gave them my story, at the end of which they took some pictures of some notes, like I have notes for, for myself today to appear articulate and Know, present well and so I had the same thing and they took pictures of them and I signed a consent to the SIU saying that the OPP could access my my information. And so I know this from research SIU is supposed to conclude their on average their investigations within 121 days uh, four months. Uh, I didn't hear from them for 10 months and their response was hugely disturbing. They quickly, meaning they, the lead investigator who spoke with me and her her uh, colleague, she said originally you contacted us with respect to this, this, and this that does not meet our threshold. Then you complained about sexual assault allegations by a police officer, and then right after that, she said we attempted to call you from your home phone, uh, your home phone number, which has since been disconnected. At this time, our investigation is closed. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. And I'm like, so I wrote her immediately back, and I said, I'm 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 terribly sorry that I couldn't be reached by my home phone. However, as I indicated to Manager So and So a year and a half earlier, you have my email that you and I have been successfully exchanging correspondence on. Um, yes, I do. Uh, I said I've got dates. The dates are all discrepancies. I said, your office is aware of when I made my allegations of sexual assault. You're absolutely aware. It took me and not my detachment or any of the obligated bodies that are responsible for reporting it. It took me to do it with you. You grudgingly involved. You didn't want to have anything to do with it. You criticized me. You you came up to my hometown. I uh, shared with you hugely difficult Circumstances,
1: Teresa. Did they record that? Did they record that interview? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure it was you know. Okay. Yeah,
0: and I had signed uh, a waiver saying that the OPP could have it if they wanted. So anyway, after I waited, imagine that was done um, December 2018. Didn't hear anything for almost a year. October, mid to late October 2019, and when they refused to involve, I'm still not giving up. No, sorry, guys. Like, I don't know who you think you people are. I don't care who you are. We all have right to live our best life. And I, I will speak up and, you know, I will speak about what happened to me. It's important. It's I'm a story. I'm part of a story of a larger picture and awareness needs to be drawn. And so a few months later, I got some correspondence from the OPP Professional Standards Investigations Unit. And that's only because when the SIU refused to involve, I wrote to the commissioner, who is the present commissioner. And in that, everything I've always done, by the way, is always professional and respectful. I would never have ever taken a tone which was negative or you know dismissive to anybody, regardless of their station. I think we need to be kind to each other and respectful of each other. But anyway, I've been through the ringer. So I wrote to the present commissioner of the OPP saying how disenchanted I was with the organization. This is my experience. And then I explained about the SIU and nobody had gotten a hold of him. I had extracted excerpts from the Police Services Act pertaining to sexual assault and who was responsible, that my detachment didn't get a hold of anybody. And this was a little package sent to the OPP commissioner, the present OPP commissioner. Four months later, nothing, nothing. Got this woman who's been sexually assaulted in such a heinous manner by one of their officers and they don't even respond because they just want me to go away and so i get a has this guy ever been investigated for the sexual assault i'm going to say no because so in in when i sent this to the commissioner which is now january 2020 so we're going a year ago year and whatever it is almost a year and a half or two years I sent excerpts from the Police Services Act, I sent a letter to uh, the commissioner, and I also sent correspondence between myself and the SIU, which contradicted their determination of not following through, that they didn't know about the sexual assault, whereas clearly I had correspondence that said so. Didn't receive anything from the OPP until finally one of their investigators got back to me, and he said, we're contacting you to see whether or not you would agree to signing a consent with the SIU to release your interview and I said what, what happened was about another 10 emails of back and forth. I said thank you very much for finally getting back to me. I said uh, however I said I'd like you to know that I already did sign that consent and I said you also need to know something. I believe anything that I sign now is going to be altered to shed them in the best light. I don't trust it. I don't trust that you're going to get the complete picture. And I want to have what happened to me. I want to be a part of this. I want to involve. And this individual said to me, we didn't get that, but I can't move forward on this until you sign a consent. And I said, well, I've already said, I I, I don't trust that they're going to act in a um, lawful manner, basically, because they're going to alter the outcome of that file. So another 10 emails later, when I refused to sign it, and I said, look, I said, if you will in, initiate investigation with your senior officers that I've already drawn attention to over the years. And he said, well, that's not part of this Section 11 investigation. I can't involve with that. And I and basically what happened was I just said um, through many more back and forths, I just didn't respond to him because he wasn't going to. He wanted to downgrade it. Basically, he wanted it to go from a criminal Um, allegation to officer misconduct. And so I I addressed that in my emails. I said, so basically you want me to sign another consent, which I think will be altered to reflect the SIU in, in a better light and discredit me. And I said, now you want to assign a lesser charge to the officer in question of officer misconduct. And I said, I can assure you the SIU knows what happened to me was criminal in nature. So no, I'm not going to agree to that. And that was in April of 2020, and then I elected to not ever get back to him. And um, then after that is, and during that time is when I started formulating my petition to the House of Commons. And um, that was interesting because prior to all of this, I never thought I was like politically motivated, but it's amazing how you can become involved, engaged, and excited although distressed and disturbed about the reality. So I I initiated a petition to the House of Commons, which was finalized, I think, literally like in January of this year. Very disturbing. Signed by fellow Canadians. It addressed uh, concerns with uh, police recruiting. It addressed negligent oversight. And it also addressed uh, the fallacy of the Human Rights Commission. And... uh, Lo and behold, it's not determined by a bunch of people in, in cabinet or in parliament. It's, it's, or if it is, it's not that information and knowledge isn't relayed to the petitioner. It was decided by the former Toronto Police Service Chief, Bill Blair, who ignored 90% of my petition, including the human rights documents signed with his former police service, including the negligence of all oversight who failed in their jobs, And all it talked about was the responsibility of the RCMP and saying their glowing praises while omitting hundreds of other Canadian police forces. And you can't go beyond that. But, you know, Teresa never wants to give up and she's banging her head against the wall. So so I take it upon myself to write the uh, Premier of Ontario uh, right after I got that petition outcome. And I wrote... Premier Ford uh, and I wrote his minister in charge of policing, Sylvia Jones, and I compiled two packages that had a decade of my allegations and my experiences and my efforts. And on top of it, I had a nice eight by ten glossy on the top of each stack, trying to give it a personal touch. And that package contains correspondence with police oversight that were aware of my sexual assault allegations, the OPP. My letter to the commissioner, uh, my petition that I tried to, uh, um, to create for change, for positive change in policing, sent to Premier Ford and his minister in charge of policing, who are always in the news talking about oversight. And to this day, I've not heard one word from either of them. So that package, they know that I'm alleging that a police officer in Ontario um, sexually assaulted me numerous times along with everything else that I am saying. And they don't even respond. They don't even have the courtesy to respond.
1: I can't even believe you still had faith in the policing at that point, or even wanted to be a part of this corrupt... Well,
0: friggin- here's the thing, that, the answer to that is is twofold. Again, I just want to briefly say that I wasn't going to let the actions, the misguided actions of one man, taint my image of what policing is all about. What's your image of it now? Well, now it's very jaded and cynical. And it's not because of the profession. It's not because of the multitudes of fine officers, of which are many. Get that right out there for anybody listening to that. I know there's some fabulous police officers. You're right.
2: And it's very very big of you to be able to recognize that at this point I,
0: well yeah you have to be I mean that's just a you know a mature assessment I mean but for me for me you know regardless of what I had been through I still I was in a position that I had already committed like six years to almost seven years to I was in my early 40 50s then I, I, I was all past I was still ready to go in top notch physical shape like literally should have been hired years before. And so I just it took me years towards the end of it. And I'm I'm gonna say like 2017, 28, 2019, you know, you're not gonna get hired, Teresa. You'll never be a police officer. And it's not because you can't do the job. I think I would have been a, a an outstanding contributing police officer. It's because the system is arranged in such a way that they've got blinders on. I mean, if that was all that it had been, that, you know, I was an older applicant and I'm I'm fighting ageism in an industry which is male-dominated to begin with, I probably could have, like, tucked my tail between my legs and licked my wounds and moved on. But it was the trauma of being separated from my husband and still trying. It was the trauma of approaching all these oversight. It was the trauma of reaching out to agencies like I reached out to Michael Tulloch, who is the, he he writes recommendations on police oversight. I wrote to him about his recommendations. I explained my situation. They never get back to you. I spoke personally with the Canadian Civil Liberties Organization because they're, a quick little blurb, what we do, CLA, CCLA actively stands up to power by fighting against rights violations, abuse of police powers, inequality and discrimination.
2: Okay, so after all this fighting you've done and all these agencies you've spoken to and written to and have ignored you, what do you say? Do you have any anything or advice to give women in policing or women trying to become police officers or women that have gone through even a little bit what you've been
0: Fighting the abusive system. Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know what? Um, what do I say? First of all, I say... It's still, I think, a profession that should be considered admirable. Sadly and unfortunately, it's also very, it's very narrow in its focus of who they allow into their prestigious club to the point where they are, because they are so well protected and so well insulated from exposure and criticism. This all addressed in my book, which I will say right now before I forget, the title of my memoir is called The Optics of Policing, Shattering the Myth of Recruiting, Oversight, and the Human Rights Commission. This book will be like no other. There are other books that talk about the policing profession and what it was like to be a police officer and some of the abuses that that you face. It continually astounds me. It, It saddens me and it astounds me because I... That's my stance. Uh, This this whole key stakeholders, you know, the police, the oversight, human rights. It's a nexus of affiliations that are resistant to change. So how do we fix it? People like you guys and me not being afraid to talk about it. Because how dare they? Like, really? Absolutely. How dare they take the efforts of one woman, mother, in her mid-40s, that proved she could do the job. That said, I have a right to be given an opportunity and say and do whatever they could to cut me down. And it took, like I said, creating a bit of a distance from really undeserved experiences to rise up above that as we women or men do because we have to do, because we know in our hearts What's right and what's wrong. I know what happened to me was wrong. And the older that I get, and the fact that I've lost 10 to 12 years of my life undeservedly, it just empowers me to go, I will not let you have that hold on my life anymore. You're still working at your great job and I'm still unemployed. it's not just been my journey. It's um it was horrendous you for them. Yeah. I mean, it was hard enough before. harassment and assaults occurred. It was hard enough before that. I was a woman, like a grown woman with a bunch of kids, but always like very lighthearted and seeing the joy in life and and appreciative of my um, situation and the many blessings that I have. And then, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to show them. I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. this, And then constantly getting doors slammed to my face. What do the kids think about it? They lost so much because. They lost the mom that they knew. Absolutely, they did. Like trying to become police officer and fighting a broken system took me down and destroyed me for quite some time. And then, you know, you get to a point where you go, okay, well, this happened. This happened. I can't deny that. But well, was it my fault? Nope, it wasn't my fault. Well, whose fault is it? It's the fault of a broken system. So, what are you going to do about it? So, as I've you know highlighted through this uh, podcast, I, I did everything that I could—from you know reaching internal standards to going outside the company to going to established oversight to petitioning the House of Commons to talking to, to reaching out to our government to no avail. I contacted lawyers. I contacted so many lawyers. I had one lawyer contact me at home unfortunately that didn't uh, culminate in an offer of help but it led me to the knowledge that I really was alone and when I every time that I tried to do something to create change like the petition or writing the premier or the minister in charge of policing I, I really ladies I really thought they'd be like oh my god I, it's true we are, you know it, yeah and none of that none of that happened and so and whether or not you realize them.
1: that this isn't unknown to them this isn't New. this is no a, they've
0: heard this before they know and they just don't care right yeah yeah but that is not going to be the impetus to say ah oh, time to give up trees no good for you absolutely, absolutely not
2: and your kids must look at you like if nothing else they've learned to never I would think the message is fight for yourselves fight for what's right and don't give up I hope that's
0: what they've learned you know absolutely Mo I I, I I'd like to say that you know just when you think that you have nowhere to go but down. Just when, you know, I mean, how much more talking about the abuse of police powers? That has got to be the most awesome, intimidating opponent somebody will ever face and have to have the bravado to go, oh my God, like, like even writing my memoir, that was something that I thought, how am I going to do this? Like allegations, its it's all in there because I thought, you know, it has impacted my family to such a negative degree that it has unalterably changed me forever. But what can I do about that? I can join the groups of women and people who are finally standing up and going, "Wow, enough is enough!" Mm-hmm. You know, like I have featured uh, writers in my story that are that are uh, researchers and professors that agree with me. Like for years, I thought I was the only person just constantly. Like I have just, you know, uh, immersed myself in this whole conversation for years. But when I finally found out and discovered that I'm not alone, that there's other people that are going, you know, challenging the police. You know, women who are coming and saying, you know, I mean, I just responded to a post on LinkedIn yesterday about this unfortunate woman who was trying to do the same thing. And it addressed the fact that this individual, you know, she made allegations regarding a sexual nature of a military officer. And this military officer, of course, as we know, is protected and they don't have to be interviewed. Even if they do choose to be interviewed, it can be considered inadmissible. The subject officer is not compelled to attend an interview. When I went to the SIU, because it was my last choice, I said that to the investigators right away. I said, I want to involve and share my story and promote awareness. But I really, I I, I feel so alone and isolated. I want a legal. I want legal. We don't provide legal.
2: So, well, and that's why they wanted to downgrade it from a criminal code investigation to a PSA. Uh, police services exactly act. mo yeah. And they're not
0: dealing with a the fool. then they can control the narrative yeah, and i I absolutely refuse them to control the narrative and that again, that's what just gets me to the to today and to you know my book is that i I finally realized you know nobody's going to help you, Teresa nobody, you lovely ladies well and we're we're all part of a, a growing team, and I'm so encouraged by that, good but Outside agencies, like supposed um, external mechanisms of investigation, uh, civilian internal—they
1: are all in each other's pockets and and uh, helping each other's political agendas. One hundred percent.
0: It's all like even even board members of police forces in the oversight—they're they're all staffed by key stakeholders. Yeah, you know, and which to me confounds me because you know they're supposed to be representative of an impartial body that examines complaints for civilians. Yeah.
2: So I just want to recap for our listeners that you have this book and life is on the uptake right now, right? You're We're proud of you.
0: You're proud of You're yourself. You're proud of you and you should be. And that's awesome. I wouldn't say I'm on an upsweep. It's still very, very challenging. Of um, course. I still don't have meaningful work. He came home because he, you know, he just, he had his great job and um, the distance and the damage endured, separation from the kids and myself, you know, he just said, this is, I have to come home. And so he came home and he's a very hard worker and he's very educated and knowledgeable, but this is all addressed in my book uh, quite extensively, Mm -hmm. uh, the detrimental um, result of ageism in the workplace, whether that be policing or other vocations. And how systemic it is and how damaging it is, right? But, you know, it, it this experience of the last 10 years has caused a profound shift in my mental state. You know, I'm not the woman I was in 2010 at all. I'm, of course not. I feel I feel fragile now. You know, this woman who's the oldest woman to have passed the police test, who was strong and so grateful. And, uh, you know, the system tried to break me
1: yeah
0: and I I just refuse to allow them to break me like how, mm-hmm. how dare I don't I, I don't think anybody is above reproach I don't I don't care who I don't care if it's I don't care if it's the government especially people who are in charge like yeah. why yeah why haven't I heard back from the minister in charge of policing if she knows I'll tell you why because they have gatekeepers and they probably never even got those packages yeah.
2: or they don't want they don't know what to say or they've been told not to
0: say anything at all told not to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I addressed that fairly succinctly in my Canadian government. You did. Yeah.
1: Well, and in closing, I just want to thank you like so much for sharing your story. I would like to give you the opportunity right now, if you would like to, if it's in your book, if you want to say who this
0: person was and his name. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that um, very quickly. I, that was my first, wish, desire, I did want to name that individual, it's it's like he still, I wanted to take ownership of the situation. But what's holding me back is the concern that, and it ties into the power that police oversight have. I have been interviewed by the SIU. And according to the SIU and the OPP professional standards, verbatim, The SIU is the overriding authority in these matters and we will not be proceeding. So if we get to a place in our culture where finally victims' rights are placed in front of a perpetrator's rights, hopefully if I get some good uh, feedback with respect to this project. But yes, the SIU has kind of tied my hands on that because what they'll come back with if I do say this individual is they'll say, well, we intervened, and we determined that there wasn't a criminal conduct. And then the OPP will get on board and say, right. well, we involved, and we tried to get her to do this. So who comes off as being questionable? And I
1: think it? just for, um, having the background that I have and, and, and having worked in certain areas, what bothers me about it is he's been left to be able to do this to whoever he wants. You know, when we don't hold people accountable for egregious behavior like this. All we're doing is making more victims elsewhere. Um, so thank you. I'm sorry. No that problem. You haven't received what you deserve and maybe. Not
0: yet. Not yet. <laughs> maybe we
1: need to be calling out Sylvia Jones on, on Twitter and you know about this. And my experience has been, cause we've called Sylvia Jones out on a lot of stuff. There's a lot of showing up and taking a lot of pictures. I don't see her doing a lot of, police reform in any way shape or form you know so
0: absolutely and um again that's the that forms the basis of it, my whole platform it's just uh, i'm gobsmacked that and we're talking multi-billion dollar agencies across yes. ontario certainly and across canada that they are operating in such a manner that the public thinks they are and they're they're completely uh
1: well, they're in control of the narrative and it's uh, very calculated to do so. so. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Teresa, and sharing your story. Thank you.
0: It was my pleasure. Um, I, uh, I'm i very grateful to be involved in such a tremendous initiative. Let's hope that um, it encourages other survivors yes. to come forward and to share their story, knowing that they're not alone and never ever allow somebody else to tell you what your limitations are or direct to your life
2: thanks for joining us today be sure to subscribe to the behind blue doors podcast to catch the latest episodes and don't forget to follow us on twitter facebook and instagram and check out our website at www.behindbluedoors.org take care and until next time